Hello everyone and welcome to this episode 12 of the In Context podcast. This is a little bit special today because this marks one year of the podcast and my guest is a special one as well. It's Jonathan Zimmerman who's Professor of History and Education at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the new book Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. FYI he was also on Joe Rogan about two weeks ago. I also want to thank everyone who has been on the podcast for taking the time to speak to me. It's been amazing for me. It's very been very interesting, very thought-provoking, and yeah, I've had some amazing people on the podcast, and I thank them for that. I also want to thank you listeners, viewers, anyone who's liked, subscribed, or even just watched or listened. It does mean a lot. If you could please continue to listen... If you could please leave a review, follow on wherever you're listening to podcasts, and you can also watch it on YouTube at GT Media UK. You can also follow me on Instagram, which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. That's G-R-E-G-O-R-T-H-O-M-S-O-N, where I'll be announcing my next guest, or should I say guests. But for now, please enjoy this conversation. Okay, Jonathan Zimmerman, thank you so much for coming on. And so you've just written a book, which I have here, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. So that's my first question. Why why should we give a damn about free speech? Well, I think we should give a damn about free speech because free speech has been absolutely integral and critical to every campaign for social justice in the history of the United States. Um, uh, I know you're not in the United States, and I should apologize. It's a very America-centric book, uh, but I think you could find many analogs in other countries, especially in Western Europe. The worst myth of our own time is that free speech is a conservative idea or an idea that prevents change. The reason I wrote the book and the reason we should give a damn is to revive our understanding of free speech as a radical idea. and specifically the idea that has undergirded every radical movement for change, women's rights, black rights, gay rights, on and on and on. Without free speech, you don't have those things. Right. Um, Now, is this purely, at the moment, do you think this is purely a, a democratic problem or is this also happening on the right? Because I think on the left, we have people maybe trying to censor people's speech when they speak about anything they might find offensive but then we also find on the right with Trump trying to um, get rid of news corporations that he would deem fake news so does it happen both sides oh definitely and this is this is why I'm uncomfortable with the term cancel culture because generally when somebody uses it what they're saying is the other side is canceling and they're not wrong but the problem is they're not looking in the mirror Um, cancel culture is real but especially in the American context it's eminently bipartisan And arguably the Republican form of cancel culture is worse just because it has more teeth. So in the United States right now, there are over 15 states that are considering bills that would prevent schools from teaching the 1619 Project. What is that except cancel culture? Uh, And it's brought to you almost exclusively by Republicans. I'm also seeing seeing in the United States, people are campaigning to get rid of certain names on buildings and schools and statues and stuff. I think one of the most absurd one I think I saw was a school that wanted to get rid of the name Lincoln somewhere. Yes. They're try- it's almost like they're trying to cancel Lincoln. So how important is it 
to not try and cancel people from the past or hold them to today's standards. It just seems a bit ridiculous to me. Yes. Well, look, that's another issue. And I do think it's radically ahistoric to judge people from the past by our standards, as you put it. But I'm a historian and I have another, let's just say, special bailiwick here. My real fear is that we'll actually lose history. Um, that is, you know, if we start eliminating these names, people will know less about them. Now, look, some people like, say, leaders of the Ku Klux Klan, they did things that are so heinous that I think it's quite justified, say, for a school to rename itself if it's named after somebody that was in the Klan. Um, and all of these questions are difficult. I don't want to try to simplify them. But as a historian, I'm deeply concerned about the airbrushing of history, especially by people who want us to reckon with race and racism. It seems to me there's an enormous tension and contradiction there. Um, so, you know, one of the monuments that came down to New Orleans was a monument, I want to go too deep into the weeds, but basically it was a monument to white people that staged a pogrom, basically a riot, during the brief moment of reconstruction when the federal government was um, trying to enforce black civil rights and voting rights in the South. We're talking about in the years just after the Civil War. And this monument, by the way, which was taken down, it was put up in the uh, 20s or the 30s, and it had a plaque on it that said, these great heroes fought to rejuvenate white supremacy. And by the way, that's true, they did. But how is it a victory in the battle for white supremacy to take down that plaque? I would argue it's quite the opposite. Um, that indeed, if we want to fight white supremacy, we have to retain those kinds of monuments so we know what it was and what it did. Um, this debate, too, at least in the United States context, has been radically polarized in a hugely unhelpful way. Basically, this is the debate in the United States. You have people that say these are monuments to white supremacy and they have to come down versus people that say, oh, no, you know, they're just monuments to Southern heritage or something like that. And they're very nice things. And we have to keep them up. Um, there are very few people in my camp which are saying these are monuments to white supremacy. And that's precisely why we need to preserve them. So we remember what it was. Now, they don't necessarily need pride of place, like standing above the city on some gigantic pedestal. But when these monuments are removed, they're often put in undisclosed locations. I'm sorry, man, like WTF, undisclosed locations. <laughs> like that's what you do in totalitarian societies. Like that's not democratic. Um, so look, we've got a huge problem with racism in the United States in our history and in our present. I don't think any reasonable person debates that. I think the real debate is what to do about it. And I would argue that airbrushing, whitewashing, and removing this stuff is not helpful in that campaign. It will have conservative effects, even though it's brought to you by people that position themselves as radicals. Yeah, we had something similar in the UK during the Black Lives Matter kind of protest. People were, there was one statue in Bristol that got um, yeah, torn got down and thrown into the water. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there were there were there was some dispute over people trying to do the same with um, Winston Churchill statues, but yeah. you had crowds trying to protect it as well. Right. Um, so I, th it's, I think that these issues are so they're so blurry that, you, that it's hard to draw a line over who does who should be up there and who shouldn't. Yeah. And obviously, Winston Churchill is maybe it's maybe acceptable to acknowledge that he was racist but also acknowledge that what he, what he did as a leader. And those are inconsistent, right? I mean, yep. why can't we say both things at the same time? 
you know, um, yeah. uh, you know, Churchill, Churchill was, you know, an, an avowed colonialist. He called Gandhi a funny little naked fakir. And by the way, like he also, you know, defended Britain in its finest hour against the Blitz. Those two things are true. Both of them are 100% true. Why can't we say them at the same time? Yeah. Um, we're talk, talking about like racism and stuff like that. One thing I always find when I'm having conversations about free speech, if I say to someone, we should have free speech and there, should be, there shouldn't be any real limitations, they would say, well, what about hate speech? So my, my, I always find that it's a tricky one to come back at, like to have any response to that. So should we, should we allow hate speech? And if we should, or if we shouldn't rather, is there a line to be drawn there? Because I think that's, that's right. the trouble with this conversation. We don't know where the line is. It, it, it has it, to keep moving. Right. And it's complicated. Look, and here's what I'll yeah. say. I mean, here also, please understand, I'm, I'm talking from the United States and there's a different yeah. constitutional tradition. You guys in the UK, you don't even have a constitution. Uh, not a written one. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, in the United States, hate speech is protected. Okay. There's amazing ignorance on this subject, even among students of law, by the way. You know, I've had law right. students tell me, well, of course, hate speech is not protected under the Constitution. I'm like, dude, if you want to say it shouldn't be, let's have that conversation. That's totally fine. Mm. But if you want to say it isn't, that's like saying one and one is three. Like, that's just wrong. So the real question is, should it be? And I do believe it should. And here's why. Um, I don't want the state deciding what's hateful and what isn't because I don't trust the state enough to make that determination in a fair and equitable way. The other thing that I know is once the state starts engaging in censorship, it's people at the bottom that will be screwed over, not people at the top. Um, that's another theme of my book. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's enormous hubris in this movement to restrict hate speech because it imagines that there's going to be some great salon, you know, some great seer who will somehow be able to determine with perfect accuracy what is hateful and what is not. And when Trump was still president and my students would plead for bans on hate speech, I'd be like, so who do you want to decide what's hateful? How about Trump? I know you're into him. You know, do you want to empower Trump's government to decide what hate speech is? I don't. Um, uh, look, there's a lot of hate out there, but there's also legitimate questions about what's hateful and what isn't. And I don't want to empower the state to make those judgments. And so, you uh, and then, by the way, that isn't to say that just to be very clear, I want to be really clear, right? Just because I don't think the state should fight hate speech. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Of course we should. Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing I want to emphasize. Raising your voice against hate speech is a form of free speech. And I think a hugely important and consequential one. So I'm not making a plea for passivity here. I'm not trying to deny the presence of hate speech. And I'm not saying we can just roll, roll over and ignore it. Quite the contrary. What I'm saying is the solution to it lies with you and me and raising our voices. It does not lie with the state. I don't trust the state that much. Well, that was um, another part of the book where you say that free, we should have free speech so that we can hold governments accountable and criticize um, governments and leaders. So um, why, why is that so important? Because I think someone who's maybe a bit more cynical would maybe say, well, my voice doesn't quite matter because 
I'm one person amongst millions. How is my voice going to be heard by our leaders and how is that going to make a change? And one more, another maybe anecdote I had about this topic is recently we had elections here in Scotland and the UK. And I remember standing in line outside waiting to vote and the line was pretty big. And I kept seeing people drive up, get to the car park, get out their car, see the queue, get back in their car and drive away because they didn't want to wait in the line to vote. So that's the kind of people I may be talking about. These people are a bit cynical about their voice doesn't quite matter or it's not, it's maybe it's doesn't really, their vote won't change anything. Look, I get that. You know, um, I understand where they're coming from. Um, and I don't think they're unreasonable in their perception. Uh, in the United States, you know, Congress's approval rating, I read, is at 8%. And that sounded high to me. Like who's in the 8%? Like guys who work on Capitol Hill? I mean, Congress is a chicken shit outfit, it is. Even people in Congress say that, you know? So I understand the cynicism and to some degree it's justified because a lot of our political systems are broken. But how do you change that? It seems to me the only answer is raising your voice. Um, and I've got proof of it. And the proof is in history, right? When I say proof, I mean, I have proof that it can happen. Not that it will, but that it can. Um, and raising your voice is hardly a sufficient condition for changing the world, but it is a necessary one, 100%, right? So it's not sufficient, right? And your friends are right. Just because you speak up doesn't mean anything that would be different. But if you don't speak up, nothing will be different. That's the point. Uh, that's why we study history, I think. Well, you, you mentioned another interesting pattern in history with censorship, where it seems that the people that are trying to do the censoring through history has went back, went from the right to the left, back to the right, back to the left. Like in World War Two, you mentioned that people were trying to censor anyone who was speaking about Nazism. And then yeah. I think the 60s, it then went to communism the complete opposite way. So what's, what's maybe the main point you make in the book surrounding that? Well, the main point is that if you start wielding that censorship hammer, now I'm going to mix metaphors, it's going to come and bite you <laughs> in the rear end. I mean, that's really the story. Again, it's back to hubris, right? We've, we've got the devil by the tail, let's pull. Um, with no appreciation that this could be wielded against you, but of course it will be. So, you know, the Nation magazine, which is sort of in the United States, kind of our guardian in a way, sort of our sort of like one of our leading left-wing journals uh, for the past hundred years. As you mentioned, during the Second World War, um, it supported efforts by the Roosevelt administration to censor fascists. And we had fascists in the United States, just like you did in the UK. Um, and you know they were jailed and their publications were censored and all that. But just 10 years later, you have the Nation magazine getting removed from public libraries all over the United States. Why? Because it was communist. <laughs> so that's hubris right there, right? Um, let's support censorship because there's a bad guy out there, but let's just think about the fact that this, that this, you know, thing is going to be used against us. And to continue that metaphor, eventually a lot of it's going to look like a nail. All right. Once you start seeing it, you say bad guys, bad guys, bad guys. You're going to find bad guys. You are, and it will be against you. That is the story of history and not so scary. Because you know, the other point that I try to make in the book is that it has its own logic. Like I get 
One of his most famous descents made this point too, that I, that I, you know, according to the book, he said, let's concede that censorship, he called it perfectly logical. If you see something that you think is truly horrible, like it makes sense to try to get rid of that. Like who wouldn't want to? But see, that's why we have to resist it. Because I do think it's natural. I understand the impulse. I felt it myself, right? But you don't have to be Freud, I hope, to maintain that just because you have an impulse doesn't mean it's good or that you should indulge it, right? So just because the will to censor is natural doesn't mean we should do it. It means we should be aware of it and we should resist it because it's also, so natural, because it's so enticing. Yeah. Yeah. I also found that I found this interesting. I was watching um, Bill Maher last night and he made an interesting point about between Democrats and Republicans in America that Democrats used to be the party of um, of like drug use and um, and sex and freedom and stuff like that. And he's basically said that now it's tipped the other way and went and like went back to front. Now you're seeing the Democrats are the kind of was was the way he put it the kind of uptight ones and um the republicans are the ones involved in sex scandals drug scandals and stuff like that i just found that so interesting because before you had you had richard nixon um with the war on drugs and you had all these other republicans who were um trying to stop the beatles or any like sex yeah. revolutions and stuff like that i just found that very interesting well you know i mean it's interesting i mean more likes to talk about sex and i understand why i mean I think in some ways, you know, the left won those culture wars. We don't really argue about sex like we used to, you know, and decreasingly about drugs, right? I mean, weed is, is illegal in many parts of the United States. Um, what we argue about is race and nation. Uh, you know, I, uh, I wrote a book you know, 20 years ago, that's how old I am, called Who's America? Culture Wars in Public Schools. Um, and the reason I have it on my desk is I'm revising it for a 20th anniversary edition. That's how old the book is and how old I am. And the revision is gonna be complicated. It is complicated um, uh, because what I argued was that 20 years ago, the religion wars like over sex ed, prayer in schools, gay rights, that those were the really insoluble ones. And the history wars, we could solve them by adding another group. It's just like, you know, um, the Armenian Americans, they're in the textbook now, the Kazakhi Americans, they're in there, you know, it's a big happy family. Um, uh, and I think things have inverted now, and that's what I'm arguing in the revision. I think the religion wars, or the, let's just call them the religion inflected ones, and the United States are very much cool. There are many reasons for that, including the fact that in some ways we're becoming more like Western Europe, we're becoming more secular. Uh, there's been a, rat, a radical decline in American church, synagogue, mosque attendance. Um, but here's the problem, Gregor. We've substituted politics for religion. It's not a good thing. So our religious identities and the meaning that we make of them have attenuated, but our political identities have become much more stronger. In some ways, have become quasi-religious ones. And you know, um, that's why these wars are so brutal now. So it's not over sex ed and drugs. That's, it's, that's kind of, and even gay rights. I mean, you know, in the United States, the only demographic that's against marriage equality are white Republicans over 60. Like Republicans who are young, they're like, huh? Like, do I give a shit about that? No. You know, I mean, that ship has sailed. Um, but the stuff we're talking about now, you know, cancel culture, the 1619 project, you know, that they care about because that's where the war is now. 
it's not about religion, it's about the nation. Yeah, I think it's also important to acknowledge with these issues that I don't think a lot of people do is how much progress has been made in the last 50, 60, 70 years with regards to these issues. It's, it's, it's like what you were saying before, doing two things at once, acknowledging that there's still work to do, but also acknowledge like how much progress has been made with regards right. to racism, sexism, homophobia, right. transphobia in there as well. Right. 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 I think it's and important to do both. I agree. And that's actually the nub of the debate about the 1619 Project, I think. You know, um, obviously there are conservatives that just think it's America hating or all this. And, you know, I think that's pretty easy to dismiss. Um, there are liberal critics uh, of it as well, however, and I think those are harder to dismiss um, because what the liberal critics say is that some of these initiatives actually um, uh, neglect or negate the kind of progress you're describing, you know, um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, exaggerate the degree of oppression and diminish the degree of um, uh, freedom. So was slavery an American uh, institution? Was it absolutely integral to the creation of the United States? It was. You know what? So was anti-slavery. Uh, anti-slavery was also largely an American product. I mean, you guys had something to do with it too, but I think it's fair to say that you know, uh, the international leaders were, you know, Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, and so on. They're Americans. And they were speaking in an American idiom, in an American tongue. Um, they are part of the story too. And I think that, you know, the great dilemma in history is how you balance these things, right? How you take both of them into account. And I do think there's a legitimate fear that some of our initiatives right now aren't doing that. You know, if you teach people that America is inherently a racist place and that our laws were created to promote and encode racism and that that's been a consistent through line, you know, I think that you neglect what you were calling progress. And I go even further, you know, I, I think that you become a propagandist, um, uh, uh, which and an ironic mirror of the, you know, love it or leave it flag wavers. Um, who don't want any, who have a singular story as well and don't want any questioning of it. Um, the good stuff I think is in the questioning. And by the way, that's another reason we have to protect free speech, right? So we can have that questioning, so we can have that debate. Yeah, how, how important bringing it back up to date is Facebook with regards to, to free speech? Because they banned, they banned uh, Trump, banned they banned them from Twitter as well. Yes, it seems they've got a, a sort of power over who can speak and who can't. Although they're a private company, the amount of people that are on these apps are yeah. like countries, more, like the whole world. So they Definitely. have some form of power and, over this. And look, it's a huge problem, you know. And you know, I I think, and I I quote someone from the American Civil Liberties Union in my book saying this: like we have to acknowledge that these are as you were saying, they're mediums of enormous public discourse. It's true they're privately owned, right? But we can't align the fact that there's an enormous amount of discourse and ultimately policy that's made via them. So they're public venues, right? They really are, right? It's true they're privately owned, but they're public venues and arguably the most important ones, right? For the exchange of ideas. Now, is there awful vitriol and hate um, and lies in them, yes, tons and tons of it. Again, no reasonable person is gonna deny that. The only real question is what to do about it. And again, 
I'm extremely uncomfortable with the idea of letting the state decide all of that, you know, of having some bureau of the state that's going to regulate it. What if that bureau was directed by Trump? Um, you know, I mean, my students who wanted Trump off Twitter, often they want some sort of bureau. And I'm like, dude, if Trump's in charge of that bureau, he's gonna stay on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so again, I think that Jack Dorsey, I think initially had the right idea. And I think that Dorsey has been appropriately ambivalent about this subject. That is, you know, he's made several comments like, I didn't get into this business to police people's speech. He does not want to do that. And, you know, I think they essentially had the right idea, which is when we see something that's false or hateful, what we say is, this is false and hateful, um, which again is a form of speech. That is speech when I just described. And I think at the end of the day, that's always the best remedy. Always, you know, um, raise your voice, keep raising it. Raise it louder and more accurately and more persuasively than the bad guys. Well, that's the old idiom, um, fight bad speech with better speech. Yes, and I believe that because I think the other alternatives are worse. You know, none of these things are easy. And again, I understand the, the will to regulate and the will to censor. Um, but I think the solution you just described is the best of the bad ones. It's not simple. It's not easy. It's not airtight. It's like what Churchill said about democracy, right? It's the worst system except for all the other ones, um, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I think this is the same. Yeah, I think with with these things, I think you make this point in the book as well, when you try to shut someone down or stop them from speaking, it puts them almost in a better light. And I think that's almost what's happened with Trump. When now that he's been banned from social media, we kind of forget what he was saying every day. Like there was always a scandal. He always says something ridiculous on social media. We don't see that anymore. So people's opinion of him will maybe get a bit better because of that. Or it'll be, yeah. if they already like Trump, it'll reinforce that. And this is another pattern that I see in my book that's repeated across time. The best way to give somebody a microphone is to try to take it away. Again, I know yeah. that sounds like a contradiction, but if you look at yeah. the way this stuff is operated, that's what's happened. People gain notoriety, they gain fame by being censored. Um, sometimes really good people. So a great example, you know, John Quincy Adams, who was our sixth president, son of the second president, he was um, arguably the most distinguished ex-president because unlike all the others, he went back to Congress and he became the leading anti-slavery voice in the Congress. Um, uh, and there were all kinds of efforts to censor what he was doing, including laws that the South uh, pushed through Congress to prevent anti-slavery petitions from even coming to the floor. And that turned out to be a great propaganda boon for Quincy Adams and for his allies. Uh, because, you know, it makes the other team look so much worse. It's like you're so afraid and you're so doubtful of your own position that you can't handle a criticism of it. It must be weak, right? It must be weak at some level if what you're trying to do is engineer the censorship of criticism of it, right? If you're really confident in it, if you really believe that it was right, you wouldn't bother doing all that. Like you would know it was right. You don't actually believe what you said, right? If you did, you wouldn't be trying to censor the opposite. I think that's a very powerful argument. 
right? And in general, I think wills to censor often do reflect a kind of ambivalence. And I think the victims of censorship have very successfully and appropriately weaponized that. Yeah, I think, well, what, one, of, one of the things moving on to a point you make about education in the book, one thing that I wasn't sure about was the idea that teachers should be able to give their opinions to their students. And the reason I'm, I'm a bit unsure about it is because I remember when I was in high school and I was quite susceptible to say, if, I, if there's a teacher I respected and he said something or she said something, I would take that as gospel. I would take it, I, res I respect that person. They wouldn't mislead me and that's how it must be. And the fact that I'm 25 now and I've genuinely only in the last maybe two years, I think I've just started to think for myself. Yeah, I would watch people I really like and um, if whatever they said, well, he said it, I like him, it must be true. Whereas now I'm starting, I'm only just starting to learn that people I like, I don't have to agree with everything they say. There's a lot I disagree with right. them. And this is, this is um, I'm probably going to go on a tangent here, but this is the idea I have with Joe Rogan, for example. Um, a lot like if I say I really like Joe Rogan and I listen to him all the time people will always say well what about this that he said and this I'm like well I don't agree with everything he says but I still like I still love listening to him and thinking about what he says he's great at what he does and I think people are they're so they get so annoyed at someone if they just say one thing they disagree with and then they just shut them off they'll never listen to oh, them again and, and when i agreed to go on joe rogan you should have seen some of the shit i took from <laughs> i can imagine you no know? because again they trotted out some bad things he said and it says has he said some both uh let's just say inaccurate and offensive things he has you know um but again i don't think that's a reason not to go on joe rogan like that doesn't make me complicit with everything he said I mean, given how much airtime a guy has, how could you agree with everything he said? I mean, that would be it would be weird and I think problematic if you did. Uh, like you would be a martinet. But to get to the thrust of your question, look, this one's complicated too. And you know, what you're describing is the danger of indoctrination. And that's real, right? You're the adult in the room. Um, you're evaluating these people. You're grading them. You have enormous influence over them, right? And to be clear, I think every teacher should be aware of that. And no teacher should ever be enjoined to say what they think, right? But I do think they should have the right to say what they think, depending on their professional judgment, for a number of reasons. The first one is they're political actors, right? They live in the world. I think in some ways it's quite disingenuous for teachers to pretend that they're these like Olympian figures that stand above the fray. They're not. Um, uh, I also think it's important for them to model a certain kind of political dialogue and political discourse with their students. Um, so, you know, Alexander Michael John, who was an American civil libertarian in the first half of the 20th century, he actually thought teachers should like, should say what they think all the time. I don't think so. I think it should be up to them. But his argument's really important. His famous aphorism was, slaves can't teach freedom. If what you're trying to model is a certain kind of political discourse, how can you bite your tongue, right? Um, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, how can you 
demonstrate what politics is if you're pretending you're above it. So I do think teachers should be allowed, again, not enjoined, but allowed to give their opinion, but, and this is the huge but, when they do so, they must make it absolutely clear that it is just their opinion and the other people in the room aren't enjoined to share it. And kids get that when you're honest about it. You know, they say, look, what I'm telling you is not the gospel, right? To use your term, right? It's my own political view because I live in the political world just like you do. I'm not going to try and disguise that, but I'm also not going to impose my political views on you, right? My job is to help you come to your own informed opinion. All right. And I think teachers should be allowed to disclose or not in the service of that. Right. Depending on the situation and depending on their professional judgment, which we should respect. Well, I think with that in mind, I think also in education, certainly in the UK, probably in the US as well, something that needs to be taught in high school and well, middle school and where you are is critical thinking and debate. I think so much of education in before students go to university is learning through textbooks and learning through exams and assessments and none of it is conversation and here's what I think and then debating it out I think that's that's maybe also if teachers are going to give their opinion students should be encouraged to come back at them with something or and there should be a lively sort of debate and teach how to do that properly well of course because it's not natural Right. You don't come out of the womb saying, you know, well, you know, I'm going to listen yeah. to what you say and consider it carefully <laughs> and not kill you. I mean, if some of the evolutionary psychologists are right, it's actually the opposite. We're sort of programmed to hate on each other. Right. And that's precisely why schools have to intervene in that. Right. Because the kids are coming up in a media environment where they don't see this demonstrated. So sometimes Susan and I, my wife and I will be watching on TV and they'll say, OK, after we sell you something, we're going to have a debate, you know, about whatever healthcare or, you know, Israel, whatever. And then you'll just see these sort of sequential rants by people. And we'll look at each other and we'll say, was that a debate? And of course it wasn't, you know, it was sequential rants. And I think that, you know, you look at what's on the internet, which is really where people are getting their stuff and it's a million sequential rants. And the really scary thing, Gregor, to think about is that we're now raising a generation that thinks that's what politics is. Politics is sequential and mutually dismissive and hostile rants. That's what they see. So the only way that changes is through school. I mean, there is no other solution, right? Um, Of course, we should try to alter these mediums and there have been efforts at that, but school is still the major institution that we use to create citizens, right? To socialize our young. And unless they see something else, unless they see a different model, demonstrated and practiced in schools, none of this is going to change. Yeah, I think, well, staying on the subject of education, you speak about as well, pornography is in that as well. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a blurry one for me as well, because I think, I think some form of regulation is needed for pornography to, to, to prevent young people because i think more and more young people especially boys are getting their sexual education from online pornography which um can i think can have a lot of negative effects such as the the like some some of the storylines are problematic and that women are usually the submissive and 
um, stuff like addiction, stuff it can do to your brain, and just like the the idea that that's what sex should be like. And I think boys right. can misinterpret that. And I think I wouldn't ever advocate that we get rid of pornography or, or anything like that. But some, at least something needs to change. I'm not quite sure what that is, but I think well, something again, needs to change I with that. Well, again, I think education is the answer. I'm glad that yeah. you mentioned pornography in the in the context of sex education, because I think it is sex education. I think, yeah. unfortunately, most of it is really bad sex education. You know, uh, I think it sends, you know, extremely destructive and sometimes misogynist messages about what sex is and can be. Um, uh, and I'll be very honest with you, I'm really glad internet porn didn't exist when I was coming up because I think I would have watched it all the time. I mean, when I was 16 years old, I had different life goals, but I would say like seeing naked women was definitely near the top, you know? Um, and of course we had these, we had Playboy and Penthouse and things that were stored under people's beds at homes, but that was small potatoes, right? Um, you know, and I'm really glad it didn't exist. You know, I think I would have watched it all the time and I think it would have fucked me up. Um, uh, but what do we do about it? Um, if you, you know, the last thing I think we want, again, is some government agency deciding what's like too awful to be on the internet. Now, just to be clear, obviously anything involving underage people is, should be regulated and must be illegal and is illegal everywhere. That's a whole other subject. But now I'm talking about consenting adults, right? Um, let's remember that since you're talking from the UK, in the United States, you couldn't get a real copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover until about 1959. So that's a story I relate in the book. Like I come home from school holding Lady Chatterley's Lover and my dad just laughs and he's like, you know, when I was a kid, I had to get a Samizdat. I had to get an underground copy of that. Like this one that was like circulated, sort of like Playboy and Penthouse, right? Um, you know, this is a real danger. Once you start to swing that ax, what's gonna be cut? Um, the argument for removing Ladies Canary's Lover was exactly the same as the argument for removing internet porn. It was that this is going to mess up young people's minds. Um, and again, that's not something I want the state to do. What I do want the state to do via its public schools is present a different way of thinking about sex. Um, and I think there's some schools that have started to do that. Internet porn is with us, right? You can bemoan that as I do, right? But you cannot deny that, okay? The only interesting question is what to do about it. And again, back to you know, the bromide that you mentioned about the answer to bad speech being better speech. I think the answer to bad sex ed, which is what porn is, is better sex ed. You know? um, and some of the private schools or independent schools in the United States are doing that. And I think to very, very good effect. You know, describing what's happening in these films, the kids have already seen and just say, okay, what's up with that? Like, why are these people doing that? And why are so many people watching? And what are they learning? Right? That's sex ed, what I just described. You know, and that's what we need. Hmm. And also, be, so being a professor of um, is education, education yes, history. and history. And history. Yeah. Um, Obviously, teaching people is very important to you. Do you think do you think academics should be required to take some form of teaching course? I think in the UK, especially, do. I I've I've tended to find that um, my lecturers 
this this seem to some I won't, don't want to generalize some are more interested in their own research and the lecturing the side gig that they have to do to be able to do their own research and be paid for it. So they're not very good teachers or they're not, yes. they don't, they're, they're not very good at simplifying complex ideas, which is what they should be able to do. Um, well, so yeah. yes, uh, uh, the answer to your question is yes. It was the focus of my prior book, okay. uh, um, which is called The Amateur Hour. It's a history of college teaching. Again, uh, apologies, very America-centric. Although my sex ed book was a global book, just saying. And I did go to the UK to do research on it. But unfortunately, most of my work has been about America. Um, and this one was too. And the reason it's called the amateur hour is that in the United States, at the university level, teaching remains an amateur endeavor. Um, now, that doesn't mean it's all bad, because there's some terrific teaching. Um, to call somebody an amateur doesn't mean they're bad at what they do. Um, the best gymnast of my youth was Nadia Comaneci, and she was an amateur because back then you couldn't be paid if you were in the Olympics. So it's not that it's bad, it's that we don't have like a shared set of standards about what's good about it. And most of all, to your point, we don't have institutional mechanisms to um, promote that and to, uh, and, and to uh, oversee it. Um, I know in the UK, there is a course you have to take when you become an academic or at least there was about teaching. Is that still the case? I'm, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I'm not quite yeah. sure. I don't know if it's required. You know, I had a friend who taught at Christchurch who actually taught the class. Um, and I went once when I visited and it was terrific. I mean, you know, it was just, okay, now, how do you simplify a concept in ways that an 18 year old will both, you know, understand and appreciate? And we don't, in the United States, even have the beginnings of professional discourse about that. Like everyone's flying by the seat of their pants. Um, and again, to mix metaphors with apologies, that's not a good way to run a railroad. You know, um, you're not gonna get a consistent set of outcomes if it's catch, it's just catch can. If you guessed, okay, just go to it. You know, you've sat in classrooms a lot your whole life. You kind of know what it is, you've seen it. So go to it. And that's what we do in the United States for the most part. Um, there are some efforts to change that, which are laudable. I think they're still in their infancy, you know, um, and it's complicated. Um, uh, and I don't wanna go deep into the weeds uh, like my book does, but I would say that one of the big inhibitors, since you mentioned <clears throat> that I'm a professor of education is that in the United States, and I think in most other democracies, the education school is the poor cousin uh, at the university. It has less status and less money. Um, so whenever you suggest improving college teaching, that conjures the school of education. Um, and people are like, well, I don't want to be associated with that. Um, you know, uh, that's going to reduce my status. And in fact, you know, I have a PhD in history, but when I decreed that I was going to study the history of education, there were many of my mentors who said like, that's a really bad idea because if you attach the word education to your name, you automatically subtract hundred status points. Um, fortunately, my main mentor, you know, his view appropriately was if this was important to you, this is what you should do. And he turned out to be right. But the critics weren't wrong, right? I mean, there are real issues there about, about status and about power. And, you know, unfortunately, um, 
any effort to improve teaching conjures the low status of the education score. And that's actually been an interesting and longstanding inhibitor on the improvement of college teaching, alas. So I've just got um, a couple more questions for you. Um, so one I thought of that brings free speech into the context of the world we're living in now is COVID-19 and the spread of misinformation. So what do you think should happen with that with regards to speech? Because some would argue that that's putting people at risk if you're, if you're spreading misinformation or saying that COVID is a hoax or something like that. People aren't going to wear masks and they're going to get close to other people, maybe pass it on to someone. Look, this is a huge problem, but let's remember a couple things. First of all, there have been anti-vax movements since Jenner, right? It's true that like with all bad speech, the internet gives that movement um, a bigger microphone. But if you start to try to enlist the state in regulating anti-vax statements, suddenly you're in the same realm as hate speech. What's an anti-vax statement? Okay, what if somebody says, um, uh, look, I think this should be up to the individual. Is that an anti-vax statement? Somebody might think so. You could make a case for it, right? If you empower all the individuals to decide for themselves, you're gonna have less vac va uh, vaccine than if you require people either via the employer or the state. So look, I'm not trying to deny the problem. And the anti-vax movement is real and poisonous. Um, by the way, the UK didn't help by publishing that article in Lancet many years ago about, you know, vaccines causing autism, in which, by the way, the author actually invented cases. Everyone should know that. It isn't just that it used bad mathematical modeling, right? He actually made up cases. I mean, that's how bad it was. Um, so there's an enormous amount of lying about vaccines on the internet but I still don't want the state to be censoring that because then the state gets to decide what an anti-vax statement is or even a statement about controlling COVID. What if somebody says, hey, how come the local florist is still closed but Walmart gets to sell flowers? That's a reasonable question. But somebody up there in the Department of Truth might reasonably say, well, wait a second, you know, this is kind of challenging our view on masks and our rules on masks, we can't have this, then fewer people will mask up and more people will die. Get rid of it. I don't want that happen. Yeah. And so my last question is just a question for me, really. Um, what was it like going on Joe Rogan? What was that experience like? It was a YOLO experience, I'll tell you. <laughs> and an out-of-body one. I'll be completely honest with you. I still have no idea why he wanted to talk to me. Um, you know, obviously he had heard about my free speech book. He had not read it. Um, uh, you very kindly actually read the book, clearly. I did. Joe well, wrote. one of the things, I'll maybe just say that, one of the things I was pleasantly surprised about, when I usually get a guest on, I'll order the book and I'll read as much of it as I can. I'm not a very fast reader. So I usually get maybe halfway through if I'm lucky, but it arrived, I was like, oh, I'm going to get through this. This is going to be fine. <laughs> he, kind of got, he did it, his staff did it. Obviously, he's broadly interested in the question. But yeah. if you want the, the interview, I mean, we don't talk that much about free speech. That's clearly what drew uh, him to me. Um, I, but, you know, I'll be very honest with you. I had not listened to Joe Rogan before he asked me to go on. Um, and Joe Rogan's target audience is you. It's not me. <laughs> Right? It's like white guys in their 20s. 
So after I got the invite, I just called the 20 something male sons of my friends, <laughs> right. right? And just said, okay, what do I need to know? Like, what's yeah. going on here? And, yeah. you know, where do I fit? Because if you look at who else is on Rogan, it's like, you know, a guy who drove a dog sled across Alaska or, you know, <laughs> bungee jumped on ecstasy or whatever it is. And I'm just like this skinny Jewish college professor. Like, what am I even doing there? And um, I still don't know the answer. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking to him. You know, I, um, I had heard a lot of negative things about him because that's what the internet is. It's negative things. Um, but I thought he was um, extremely cordial and friendly. And the thing I really liked about him is he didn't put on airs. Um, you know, Joe Rogan is an autodictat. He doesn't have a lot of formal education, right? And autodictats often know a great deal about certain things that they've dug into. But then there are very big gaps just because they didn't have formal education. Um, so, you know, I I'll admit that I was somewhat surprised that when I started talking about the caste system in Nepal, where I served in the Peace Corps and the idea of untouchability, that um, Rogan seemingly had never heard of that. Like that there's a, there was, and there still is a caste system. And by the way, the listeners in Nepal, which was an incredible freak out as well, that people in Nepal listened to Joe Rogan, they were all over this. And there was like a subreddit of Nepalis that listened to <laughs> Joe Rogan and that were, you know, I speak Nepali a little bit in the show. They're like parsing my accent. The whole thing was just wild, you know, just yeah. the, Joe Rogan seems like the most American thing on earth to me. Even the yeah. idea that there were Nepalis listening to it was incredible, but that they actually have chat groups where they discuss it. Um, so it was an amazing experience. It was a whole world that I wasn't familiar with. Um, but I, I did, I'm glad that I did it because I learned more about that world, you know? Um, and, and I gained more appreciation for what he does than I had had because I was ignorant of that. Yeah. Well, that's well. That's one of the things I said when I, I posted onto my social media that um, I was going to have you on. And so, thank you very much for coming on. I said that in the post. I said it's crazy to think that this guy was on Joe Rogan and now he's coming onto my tiny little podcast. So uh, I really appreciate the time you've you've given me and spending your morning um, having well, this conversation. I, I, I'm on the most important podcasts, right? I mean, Joe Rogan and yours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah. I'll quote that. I'll quote yeah. that. Maybe put that my slogan there. Very good. Yeah. Anyway, thanks a lot. It was fun. And so that's the show. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for listening and watching over the last year. It genuinely means a lot to know others are enjoying these conversations as much as I enjoy being in them. And again, if you could please like, follow, subscribe wherever you're watching or listening to podcasts. Um, leave a good review, it does mean a lot. You can also find me on Instagram where I post updates at Gregor Thompson, that's G-R-E-G-O-R-T-H-O-M-S-O-N. And thanks for listening and take care. I'll see you next time for the next episode of the In Context Podcast.